0: All right, today we are taking our break from the book of Acts uh, during this Advent season to look at Advent and the Sundays leading up to Christmas. We lit the second Advent candle today along with the first Advent candle on the Advent wreath and uh, the second Advent uh, candle is commonly called Bethlehem's candle because The prophet Micah foretold of Jesus' birth in the city of Bethlehem, the same city that David was born. But as I told the children, this is also about faith. Last Sunday, our Advent theme was hope. This Sunday, our Advent theme is faith. And along with that is preparation. So when we think about Micah and all the prophets who foretold the coming of Jesus. It was God's people who were to live their lives in preparation for that coming. And it is no different for us today. So let's look at our scripture today. It's from the Gospel of Mark. uh, As we look at our faith and specifically our preparation our waiting, and all of the prophecy that foretold the coming of Jesus. And those things, our preparation, our waiting, prophecy itself, all of those things are rooted and grounded in faith. And we are to be a people in preparation as we faithfully await the coming of our King. And there is a proper way to do that. There's an improper way to do that. So that's what we want to talk about. How do we faithfully prepare and wait for the coming of the king? Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, the first eight verses. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, "...who will prepare your way before you." The voice of one crying in the wilderness, "...prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight." John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins." Now John was clothed with camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist and he ate locust and wild honey. And he preached saying, there comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your gospel. We thank you that the gospel is the power of God to salvation. We ask that you would restore your gospel to your church, that men would once again thunder from pulpits across this land, the straight gospel of Christ, the only gospel, the only message that has the power to save men from hell. Father, we ask that you would grant us today grace and mercy As we look at your gospel, as we read your gospel and proclaim your gospel, we ask, Father God, that you would work in us by the power of your Spirit to change us and to transform us, to conform us to the very image of Jesus. We ask this, Lord, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we look at these eight verses, Mark begins this gospel With these words, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That is the first verse here. The beginning of the gospel. Now this certainly was not the first time that the gospel was proclaimed. So we can go into the scripture and we can go all the way back to Eden. And in the garden, the gospel was proclaimed. When God foretold and told the serpent that... The seed, the promised seed would come and crush his his head one day. That's the gospel. We can go before that when the record says in the beginning God said, let there be light and there was light. That's good news. That God dispelled darkness with light. So certainly the gospel did not begin here in Mark's. Record. It didn't begin in Matthew's record or Luke's record or John's record. But yet, Mark says, in the beginning of the gospel, or the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So the gospel was proclaimed through the law and the prophets, through the record of the Old Testament scriptures. And the ordinances of the law were never intended to save us. In fact, they were intended to point out our need for salvation. And they were intended to point us to the Savior that would actually save us. The gospel was proclaimed through the prophets as they foretold the coming of Christ, the Messiah. And the glorious salvation that he alone would bring to the world and to his people. So Mark, in the opening of his gospel, is marking the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark is declaring what all the law and all the prophets pointed us to. Mark is identifying the beginning of the good news of Jesus, the anointed Son of God as having finally come to us. So if you can imagine, if we were told the most important person you can imagine is coming. For many years it has been foretold and preparation has been taking place for all of those centuries. And all things are leading up to the coming of this most important and most special person. And all things we have been told will finally come true, and he will finally do. The time finally comes for all that has been foretold, for all that has been prepared to finally culminate in the coming of this person. And now having come, this person is... Beginning to do all of the things that were promised, all of the things that were foretold. Well, I said imagine, but the reality is we don't have to imagine because that's exactly what happened with Jesus. This is the reality of the coming of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. When Mark writes these words, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he is marking the entrance of Jesus onto the world stage to do all that had been foretold in the scripture. Just as Isaiah had cried out for him to do 600 years earlier. Remember last week we looked at at Isaiah when Isaiah said, Lord, rend the heavens, or Lord, tear open the heavens. Well, that's exactly what happened when Jesus was born. Isaiah prayed and he cried out to God, rend the heavens, and God tore open the heaven. The curtain was removed and the Son of God entered onto the world stage through the womb of his mother, Mary. Humanly speaking, the main event had begun. Everything else was leading up to, foretelling us. It was preparation and now Jesus had actually come. All that the law and all that the prophets foreshadowed and foretold now would come to pass with the coming of Jesus. Verse 2, as it is written in the prophets, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare Your way before you, if you look at that, don't get confused. That verse 2 is not talking about Jesus as the messenger. It's talking about John the Baptist as the messenger who would go before the face of Jesus to prepare the way for Jesus to come. John the Baptist was six months older than Jesus. They were practically the same age, but remember Elizabeth was barren, and she wanted a child. And the angel appeared, and she was uh, told that she would have a child, and her and her husband uh, were able to conceive a child, and said, you'll call his name John. And six months later, the angel comes to Mary and says, you're going to have a child, but Mary says, how is this possible? Because I'm not married, I'm a virgin, and I've never known a man. She was betrothed to Joseph, but they had not wed. They had not performed the marriage, which means they were as good as married, but they had not consummated the marriage yet. Because the consummation of the marriage didn't happen until the marriage ceremony, until after the wedding. But the betrothal was the contract to be married. And Mary was, for all practical purposes, the wife of Joseph, a virgin. And now the angel comes and says, you're going to have a child. And she said, how is this possible? I've never known a man. And what did the angel say to her? With God, all things are possible. And so they are. And so this is verse 2, speaking of John the Baptist who would go before... Jesus, to prepare the way. The beginning was marked by God's messenger who would sin before the face of his son, who he would sin before the face of his son. This messenger is to prepare the way before Jesus Christ, the son of God. The messenger is described very specifically in verse 3. Now remember, this is the second Sunday of Advent, and our theme is faith, But it's in terms of preparation. What was John's purpose? To prepare the way for the coming of Jesus. Why do we still celebrate Advent? Not just because Jesus did come, but because Jesus will come. And so just as John was sent to prepare the way for the Lord to come, we are here and we are to be preparing for the coming of the Lord. In every way you can think of. Not just personally, but corporately. And so this messenger is described for us in verse 3. Mark chapter 1 verse 3. He's described as the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his, str- his paths straight. This is quoting from Isaiah chapter 40. It's in Isaiah chapter 40 that Isaiah talks of this messenger. That Isaiah speaks of, foretells of this voice crying in the wilderness 600 years before that voice actually utters a a, a sound. Just as Isaiah prophesied the birth of Jesus 600 years before the birth of Jesus, he's prophesying John the Baptist, the ministry of John the Baptist, 600 years before the birth of John. And John is described in Isaiah as the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. That's what the voice is saying. That's what the voice is crying. This is the voice of one crying in the wilderness. But this is not the one the voice is pointing us to. You understand? John is pointing us to Jesus. The voice is pointing us to Jesus. In fact, as John was baptizing Jews, this is important. We miss this if we don't do our research or we don't study. If we just read the scripture, we see John is baptizing. We might think, well, he's baptizing anyone who wants to get baptized. Well, John was The voice crying in the wilderness to the Jews, to God's people, the one to whom the Messiah would come first. And when John's baptizing in the River Jordan, he's baptizing Jews, which was not a common practice. And the Pharisees go out and they say, who are you? Are you Elijah? Now, that was an important question because they knew their Bibles. The Pharisees knew the Bibles. They knew knew the Scripture. They knew the prophecy. They knew Elijah was to come before the Messiah. Are you Elijah? No, I'm not Elijah. Are you the Christ? Nope, I'm not the Christ. Well, then by whose authority are you doing this baptizing of these Jews, treating them like a bunch of Gentiles, getting converted to Judaism? That's not what Jews do. But that's what John did. Why? Because John was preparing the way for the Messiah would come. And the Messiah said to one Jewish religious leader, Truly, truly, I say to you, Nicodemus, the leader of the people, unless one is born again, he can't even see the kingdom. John is preparing the way so that Jew and Gentile alike could experience the miracle of a new birth. And by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, they would stop being Jews, they would stop being Gentiles, and their identity would now be found in the one new man who is Jesus Christ. It was, in a sense, a proselyte baptism because it didn't matter whether you were a Jew or whether you were a Greek, you had to be baptized into Jesus because only Jesus could save you. The law can't save you. The prophets can't save you. Keeping the law and reading the prophets won't save you. Being a good Jew won't save you. Only Jesus can save you. And this is what John was preparing the people for. This is why he told them what he told them. So when we look at this, the beginning of the gospel was also an end. For those things that had to pass away, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ marked an end. Some things had to decrease and fade away so that Christ and his kingdom could increase. The voice of one crying in the wilderness is John the Baptist, and John marked a beginning, but also an end. John marked the beginning of the gospel of Christ in the kingdom age, but he also marked the end of the previous age of the law and the prophets. Now, not an end to the law, but the fulfillment of the law. That's what Jesus said. I didn't come to end the law, to abolish the law. I came to... To fulfill the law. And the law must still be fulfilled today. And in case you did not know this. Let me give you some good news. You and I can't fulfill the law. But not only can Jesus. Jesus did. And the way we fulfill the law today. Is to put our trust in Jesus. Who is not only the law giver. But the law keeper. And the only one who can satisfy all the demands of the Father. That's why we have to be baptized into Him, identified with Him, because the Father is not going to accept us in our own identity, because we fall short of His glory. But when we come to the Father through the identity of another, specifically through the identity of His Son, the Lord Jesus, who kept the law perfectly, who lived a sinless life, then we are accepted Into the Father. This is why Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. So Jesus makes this very clear. The beginning of his gospel was the end of something else. Luke 16, 16. Jesus said, the law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached. And everyone is pressing into it. Matthew 11:13. Jesus is talking in this chapter, in these verses about John. In Matthew 11:13, Jesus says, "For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John." John's ministry marked the end of a long age in which all the prophets in the law prophesied the coming of the Messiah, the Christ who is the Son of God. Christ the Messiah came. He was born in Bethlehem, laid in a manger. Wise men came to worship him. Christ has come. We're not waiting for him to come. He's already come. You know, he's going to come again. But when he comes again, it's not his first coming, it's his last coming. Because once he comes again, he's not leaving, he's not going back to heaven. In fact, he's bringing heaven with him. To merge it with the earth. Christ the Messiah had come. The prophesying of his coming was over. Now was the beginning of all that had been foretold. A new age, or as the Bible terms it, a new creation has come with the coming of the last Adam. That's how Jesus is described in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This last Adam who is also called the second man, not chronologically, but but typologically. Adam was the first man, the man of dust. Jesus is the second man, the Lord from heaven. We are all born men of dust. We must be born again. To bear the image of the heavenly man, the second man, the second humanity if you will. The second man is the Lord from heaven who has put off and has put away the sinful man of dust so that all who are his will bear his glorious heavenly image. Listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 47-49. through Paul writes, this first man, he's talking about the first Adam, our father. This first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. We're not living in the age of the law and the prophets any longer. That age has passed. We're living in the age of God's kingdom and the gospel of the kingdom. We may still bear the image of the man of dust, but we have been born again. If you are trusting in Jesus today, if you know Jesus is your Savior, if you're trusting Jesus as your Savior, you've been born again. And if you've been born again, then you will bear the image of the heavenly man. We are those who do now, yes, we bear the image of the man of dust, but we shall one day in full conformity bear the image of the heavenly man, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is what Romans 8.29 says. This is our destiny. We've We've been predestined to be conformed. To the image of the son of glory. So the man of dust must decrease that the heavenly man may increase. So the age of the law and the prophets has passed. We're in the kingdom age. And the gospel of the kingdom is going forth and the kingdom is advancing. And all the while this is taking place, the man of dust must decrease that the heavenly man may increase. Verse 4, John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. John's message of repentance for the remissions of sin was a message calling for the man of dust to give way to the heavenly man. John knew this meant that he must decrease so that Christ would increase. In fact, this is... What the very thing that John said, it's recorded for us in the, the gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 30, when some of John's uh, apostles or disciples came and said, hey, Jesus and his guys are over there baptizing. They're stealing your thunder, John. What are you going to do? They're moving in on our territory, stealing your disciples. And the response of John to his disciples was, He must increase, and I must decrease. In other words, John says, this is why I came. I came to prepare the way for him. It is right. It is good. It is what must happen. I must decrease. He must increase. And that's not unique to John. That is true for every one of us. What John knew and what John obediently gave way to is the very thing each of us are called to do each day. We are called to decrease that Christ in us may be increasingly made manifest. So, as it is, or as it was with John, so it is with us. Jesus must increase, but we must decrease. Now, there's a right way and a wrong way to understand this. How many of you believe the sun rose this morning? Y'all know that's a trick question, right? You know the sun didn't literally rise this morning. You know that, right? But is it wrong to say the sun rose this morning? It's not wrong to say that. But we know, technically speaking, the sun did not rise. The earth turned. Just as the sun does not literally rise, Christ in us does not literally increase. It's like when I'm born again, I don't have a little Jesus that's planted in me and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger as time goes by. That's not what happens. That's not what, that's not what John is saying. That's not what the Bible teaches The earth turns and the sun is increasingly seen and appears to be rising. What was John's message? Repent. What does the word repent mean? It means to to turn. It means to change your mind and to turn. It's a turning. As we repent and turn from sin, Christ in us is increasingly seen and appears to be increasing. Increasing. This is why we are commanded to repent so that Christ may be increasingly seen. The more we personally, individually, and the more we, the body of Christ, corporately as a whole walks in humble repentance, the more Jesus increases, the more Christ increases. And he must increase which means we must decrease. If the earth doesn't turn, the sun's not going to rise. And if we don't turn, Christ is not going to increase. You get it? In verse 5, it goes on, it says, Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Kind of sounds like a revival, right? But they weren't really in the midst of a revival. You know what they were in the midst of? They were in the midst of a famine. Do you know what famines produce? Famines produce hunger. When John comes... All the law and all the prophets prophesied until John. John was the last Old Testament prophet. John was spoken of, foretold in the Old Testament. In fact, the last prophet who uttered prophetic words recorded for us in the canon of Scripture, the prophet Malachi, foretold the coming of John. Except he didn't call him John, he called him Elijah. But we know it was John because the greatest commentator of all gives us the commentary on it, that being Jesus. When John is born, there has been 400 years of famine, a drought, a famine of God's Word, no prophetic word in the land. Now, it's not that they didn't have the Word. They had the Scripture. But there was no man... There was no prophetic voice. There was no one from God walking through the land, prophesying to the people the word of the Lord. Malachi was the last one. And then you have 400 years of nothing. Well, not nothing. There's a lot of history that took place, a lot of important history. But in terms of the prophetic word of the Lord, there was no prophetic word until John comes. And he is the last Old Testament prophet who ushered in the coming of Jesus, the Messiah. It had been 400 years since the last prophet Malachi carried and proclaimed the prophetic word of the Lord to God's people in the land of Israel. There was a true drought and famine of God's word in the land. Famine produces hunger. God allows the famine of his word not to starve his people to death, but to create in them a desperate hunger By which they will eat. And when we are finally hungry enough, that's exactly what we will do. We will eat. Now, in our modern culture, we have what are called food deserts. Did you know that Taylor is a food desert? Parts of Taylor are food deserts. And a food desert is any place that's more than, how, how far, Tiffany? Like, uh, I think if you're more than, it's like a very small number of miles. If you're more than like two or three miles from a grocery store, it's, I know it's under five miles. If you're that far away from a grocery store, you live in what's called a food desert. Now, that doesn't mean... It could mean in some parts of the world there's nothing to eat. It's like you drive through parts of the United States, you drive through parts of Texas, and you, gotta, you, you might have to drive 50 miles to get to the nearest grocery store. Now, that's a food desert. That's what I call a food desert. I mean, I don't like it when i got to drive, you know, uh, eight minutes to get to HEB to get what I forgot. Oh, i got to turn around and go back, and it takes me eight minutes to get there in my car. But if you didn't have a car, if you lived in a certain place and you were far enough away from a grocery store, you would live in what's considered a food desert. Now what's interesting about food deserts is, culturally speaking, food deserts are not always places that are void of food. They can be, but they can also be places where junk food is more easily accessible than healthy food. So, if you live a block from the McDonald's, but you're five miles from the HEB, you've got food available to you, but you live in a food desert. Because the culture recognizes that you can't live on McDonald's or you shouldn't, or Burger King, or Whataburger, or any of the other fast food places. And so that's called a food desert. It's not food's not available. But it's not the right food. It's not the healthy food. It's not the food that's going to lend itself to life and health and you thriving and being prepared for long life, right? Well, just as this is true culturally, this is true spiritually. Some say there's a famine of God's word in our land today, and I believe that's true in many ways. And in some places in the world, it can be literally true, where they don't have Bibles, they don't have the Word of God. I remember I got a little bit, and I still have it. It's about, I mean, it's maybe an inch and a half by an inch and a half. It's, a, it's a, the Gospel of John written in Russian. And they, this was back when the Soviet Union was still in play. And they had to smuggle the Word of God through the Iron Curtain. And they had these little bitty tiny Gospels of John written in Russian, that they would smuggle into the Soviet Union and they would distribute those. And then once they got these little bitty Gospels of John smuggled into the Soviet Union, what the Soviet, what the Russian believers would do is they would copy them by hand. And then they would pass the Scriptures. They didn't have a Mardel or a Walmart or an Amazon where they could just order Bibles. They didn't have Bibles collecting dusts on their shelves. They didn't have the Word of God. They truly were in the midst of a famine of God's word. They lived in a spiritual food desert. But that's not our problem in America. In America, where we live, it's less a famine than it is a food desert. We have food all around us, but it's not healthy. In many cases, it's actually poison and detrimental to your health. It will kill you. We've developed appetites for junk food, spiritually speaking. We've stopped providing gospel meals because the demand has waned. The demand for spiritual junk food has been so great and increasing to the point that many churches have completely reworked and changed their menus to make it more palatable for the people coming to their restaurants. If the people demand spiritual junk food, then that's what the church will serve in an effort to keep customers happy and coming back. Because really, that's what it's all about, right? I mean, I'm here to keep you guys happy and coming back. We will, of course, sprinkle in something healthy here and there because we have to do that. But only to make ourselves feel better about the lies that we're telling our customers. This is the landscape of much of the church in America today. And you wonder why our country is literally going to hell? This is why. Well, that's not what John the Baptist or Jesus did. They didn't serve up a menu to keep their customers happy and coming back. They served up straight gospel. No sprinkles, no syrup not sugar-coated at all. They were in it for salvation, not for starvation. The gospel is spiritual nourishment, and any other gospel is malnourishment. You can call it the gospel all you want. You can call Big Macs food all you want, and they will fill you up, and they will even satisfy you. But it's been proven scientifically, if you live on a diet of Big Macs, you're going to die sooner than later. They've even made a Netflix documentary about it. What happens if you just live on fast food? Follow the science, as everybody likes to say these days. Follow the science, okay? You do know God invented science, right? If God is allowing a famine to occur in our land, it is so that his people, called by his name, will humble themselves and pray and eat the good news and become spiritually nourished, and experience God's healing, and more importantly, the increase of Christ. So it's time to turn our hearts. Verse 6, Now John was clothed with camel's hair, and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locust and wild honey. This is the part the kids have been waiting for. John was an Old Testament prophet. He dressed like it. Specifically, you know who he dressed like, who he looked like? He looked like Elijah. That's who he looked like. He didn't dress that way accidentally. He dressed that way because God led him to dress that way. He was and is the prophetic fulfillment of Elijah who was to come before the Messiah. The Jews today are still waiting for Elijah and the Messiah to come. We celebrate Advent because Christ, the Messiah, has come. And according to Christ, so has Elijah. Listen to the words of Jesus, Matthew chapter 11, verses 13 through 15. Jesus said, for all the prophets and all the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. Who has ears to hear, let him hear. I think we should hear and listen to what Jesus has to say. Jesus is referencing the words of Malachi, the last Old Testament prophet before John. Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Malachi writes, "...behold, I send you Elijah..." the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. We very often read that verse and we're looking into the future to the great and terrible day of the Lord. But I want to ask you a question, church. What day could be more great and what day could be more terrible than the very murder of the Son of God? hanging naked and scourged to the consistency of ground meat who took on sin, our sin, and became sin for us that we might be delivered from the wrath that was due us. And the Bible says all the wrath of God was poured out upon Jesus so that it would not have to be poured out upon God's people is there a day more great and terrible than that? When the angels and the creation itself saw their creator hanging and dying on a cross, you talk about a great and a terrible day. We weren't there, but the angels were. And creation was, and Paul says, that the very earth groans and cries out for the revealing and the manifestation of the sons of God because the creation was there and saw the creator crucified on a cross. And it might not be for us today living in America with access to pretty much everything we want, when we want it, delivered the same day if you order it early enough. We might not think of it this way, but the creation that was there, the angels that were there, the witness of the Son of God murdered and hanging on the cross, I promise you there is no day greater and there is no day more terrible that could ever occur than that day. And before that day, the prophet says, Elijah will come. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. The question is, do we have ears to hear? Then we need to hear the words of Jesus. We are waiting no longer. Elijah has come and so has Christ. We are his people, the redeemed of the Lord, and we are to live as such that we may See him ever increasing even while we are decreasing. Because that's okay. Because what's most important is that Christ increase. We must turn our hearts to God and with the turning of our hearts to God, we will know how to love one another with the love of God. But if we do not walk in obedience to God, the blessing promised will turn into a curse. God tells us that. So we must turn our hearts to God and with the love of God turn to one another. God have mercy on the church. God have mercy on our nation. This is the nation I live in. I pray for every nation. I pray for all people. I pray for all the church. It's why we confess that we believe in the Holy Catholic Church, not the Roman Catholic denomination, but the real church, the universal church of believers that has existed since the beginning of creation and will exist into eternity. We have brothers and sisters all over this world that we'll never know until, maybe, and, until we get to glory one day. But they're nonetheless our brothers and our sisters. They're part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we should pray for them, but God in his divine providence didn't cause you to be born in Ethiopia or Egypt or any other country on the earth. Maybe he did, but he brought you here today. You're here today because God has put you in this nation. And as we pray for God to have mercy on his church, we need to pray that God would have mercy on the nation He's placed us in to be salt and light to make a difference. As John did, we must point people to Jesus. Verse 7, and he preached saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. This is a major sin in the church today, thinking that our ability to draw people in, to capture them with slick marketing and programming for every need imaginable is their salvation. It's not. If we can just get them in our buildings, I've been to the church growth seminars. I know what they teach. I know their language. If you can just get them in the building, I'll teach you how to keep them. If you can get them in the front door, I can teach you how to keep them from going out the back door. If you can get them in the back door, I can teach you how to keep them from going out the front door, I mean, however you want to slice it. This is what the church has been reduced to in our modern times. We don't believe in the gospel anymore. We don't believe in the power of the gospel anymore. We believe in the power of marketing. We believe in the power of programs. We believe in the power of all these things that can't save anyone from anything. Y'all got me preaching now. We don't need to preach about sin. We just need to love our neighbor. The Holy Spirit will convict them of sin. I just had a meeting with some pastors this week, and I had a pastor ask me a question related to this because of some things happening in their church. And there's four, four of us meeting and one of the guys who worked with a group of pastors said basically what, what, what it has been reduced to is we don't want to talk about those things because we don't want to offend people. And what we say and what we tell ourselves, now this pastor didn't agree with this. This person didn't agree with this. He's like, I want to know what you guys think about this. Basically, we're just called to love our neighbor. That's the language. We're called to love our neighbor, so we're not going to talk about those uncomfortable things. We're just going to let God deal with the person, and we're going to love our neighbor. Now, that that all sounds great. That all sounds good, but it's not biblical. Because how is the Holy Spirit going to convict someone of something if I won't talk to them about it? If I lead you to believe that the way you're living your life and your sinful lifestyle is okay and we're just going to not talk about it, we're going to take the military option, don't ask, don't tell. Hey, listen, you don't tell me and I won't ask any questions. And then we'll just trust the Holy Spirit to, to do what he, what he does. The world loves that. Problem is it's not biblical. It's just not biblical. So we have a decision to make. Are we going to be biblical and Probably unpopular with some people, or are we going to be popular and unbiblical? Well, you decide which one you want to be. I've already decided which one I want to be. To the best of my ability, I want to be biblical. I'm not saying it's always easy, I'm not saying I always like the results, but this is the truth. So if we can get to a place and get away from these terms that we create, and these programs and these methods that we create, all to replace the simplicity and the power of the gospel. The gospel is the power of God, the salvation, and that's really all we need to know. The gospel very simply and very powerfully points people to Jesus, it tells them why they need a Savior. It tells them what they need to be saved from and to. And it tells them who that Savior is. John baptized with water. But he said, there's one coming who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I indeed baptize you with water. But he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John was not minimizing water baptism. He was emphasizing being baptized in and by and with the Holy Spirit. There are many thoughts and many beliefs about being baptized with the Holy Spirit. We're not going to talk about them today. We're just going to cut right to the chase and what the Bible has to say about it in the ultimate sense. The simple and powerful truth is that we are placed into Jesus by the Holy Spirit when we are born again. When we're born again, the Holy Spirit comes to live in us. That's how Jesus lives in us. Remember, I don't have a little Jesus living in my heart. I've got the Holy Spirit in me, and Jesus lives in me through the Holy Spirit. So every believer, by definition, has the Holy Spirit, has been baptized in, by, with the Holy Spirit. And our Holy Spirit baptism is our source of power to be witnesses to Christ, to do His will and to obey His Word. That's why We have the Holy Spirit, to have power to be witnesses to him, to obey his will, to do what he commands us to do in his word. Our baptism in water is symbolic of our death, our burial, and our resurrection in Christ. It is our identification with Jesus and his resurrection life. Our baptism does not save us. Jesus saves us. Our baptism marks us as one who will manifest his increase as we decrease. Every baptized believer, that should be the projection of their life. He increases as I decrease. As we grow up physically, spiritually, in every way, There should be an increase of Jesus and a decrease of us if we are his children baptized by his Holy Spirit. We are a people who are commanded to walk true to our baptism. We are to walk true to Jesus, our baptizer, and the one we are baptized into by the Holy Spirit. Christ has come we are looking and preparing in faith for his coming again. Our life is preparation for his coming. Because one way or another, if he doesn't come to us, we will go to him. We'll meet him coming or going, but one way we're going to meet him and are we prepared? Are we ready? And that preparation is not just about me getting to heaven. That preparation is about what kind of world are we leaving these children? What kind of world are we leaving our children and our grandchildren and the generations to come? That's what our preparation is about. Not just about us getting to heaven, it's about the kingdom. Is he increasing? If he's increasing, his kingdom's increasing. That's why we celebrate Advent. That's why we remember his coming past and his coming future. And we, this is our time of visitation. It's our time of preparation. May we be ready. Amen. Let's get ready to come to the table. this table that God graciously prepares for us every week. Now, I had a, going back to my conversation as we're getting ready here, one of the pastors asked me, he asked the group of us, told us about a situation where he had someone in his church who was living an unrepentant sinful lifestyle. And I listened to what the pastor said, and, and I said, you know, this is, this is the importance of church membership, and this is the importance of communion. When Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, this brother who's unrepentantly sinning against the body, he's, he's in an adulterous, adulterous relationship with his stepmother, and he's unrepentant about it. When Paul says, don't eat with him, he's not just like, don't take him to... Applebees and out for lunch. That, Paul's saying, don't eat with him. Don't, don't let him, he can't come to the table because he's an unrepentant sin, and you've gone through all the steps. You've gone to him privately, you've gone to him again privately, and, and he's 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 like, I ain't I'm not repenting. At that point, you say, You can't come to the table, you can't have fellowship. And that, that, the point of that was not punishment. The point of that was restoration. Paul said he's pushed us to the point that we have to shun him. But the point is that he'd be restored. And the good news is when you get to 2 Corinthians, he was restored. Now Paul's chastising those who don't want to forgive him for his past sin. This table, every week we come to this table. And you are invited, we are all invited to this table as covenant members of the body of Christ. This is a table of thanksgiving. It's a table of grace. We're not perfect people. I'm not going to speak for you, but I have sin in my life that I have to deal with all the time. I'm not a perfect person. The reason I can come to this table is because I believe and I trust in the grace of God. I know what standard God demands, and, and, and there's no way I can live up to that. But I don't come to this table fearful of God. I come to this table thankful for what God has done for me. And I eat that bread and I drink that cup with full thanksgiving in my heart because here I am, a sinner saved by grace, and yet God still invites me to his table. So you are invited as a sinner saved by grace to come to this table trusting in Jesus to wash you, to cleanse you, and to make you clean, clean enough to sit at his table and partake of the body and the blood of Jesus. So Christian, welcome to Jesus. Come. Let's all stand. Well, Advent is a celebration of hope. It's a celebration of faith. We're to have both in Christ, hope and faith, as we look to his coming. Today, our charge... Is the same charge John gave to those who came out to his baptism to repent of sin, to trust in Jesus. We are charged to walk in his power, in the newness of his life that we receive by grace through faith in Jesus. We are to seek his increase to our own decrease. We must develop a hunger and a taste for the pure and unadulterated gospel of Christ. We are to resist spiritual junk food and ask God to give us appetites and desire for his word. We are charged through the scripture to grow up into Christ in all things, to not prolong our spiritual adolescence. We have a message to tell and a work to do. We need the body of Christ to humble herself so that she can grow up and rise up and obey his word and his spirit. We read the scripture today during the service, 2 Peter chapter 3, and verse 12 says, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Hastening. We can hasten the return of Jesus. You say, how can we do that? by being prepared, by living prepared, by seeking his increase to our decrease. Advent reminds us that we are to be in faith and in preparation for his coming. I pray we are doing just that. Amen.